Hello, this is Erin from Horsing Around with Kenny and Erin, and today I am flying solo. Kenny will be back next time. She already had something on her schedule, so I am flying solo today. Now, last time we were um, touching on a few things for the month of February, like recognizing things that um, we do recognize during the month of February. So before I get started on the main event, which is uh, for today will be 10 common questions that sex therapists and sex coaches are asked. I want to do a continuation of things that we recognize during the month of February. So last time we did um, heart disease and we also uh, stressed the importance of educating oneself on teen dating violence. So continuing on with the month of February for Black History Month, I specifically wanted to uh, mention several notable women of color associated with strides in sexual health. Now there are actually dozens of women who uh, from the past and present who have contributed to sexual health. Now before I get started with this, I don't like to use the phrase African American and I don't because I've actually never been to Africa and none of my relatives have ever been to Africa. And I've actually heard people who are from states of Africa, and yes, Africa does have states. I've heard people from there be offended because black people from the United States call themselves African-American. And when I got uh, into conversations with them, I kind of understood that, uh, that we have not shared the same experiences. People who have immigrated from Africa to the United States, they have lived completely different lives. Um, they're actually very cultured people and multilingual people. They usually come over here and they're already educated, very highly educated. A lot of times they're very wealthy people. Uh, so they, they have very different experiences than uh, the black people who are here in the United States. Now that doesn't mean that people in, black people here in the United States don't have some of that, but it just doesn't really represent um, like the phrase that we used, African-American. So enough on that tangent, I'm just not going to use African-American when I refer to uh, black people here in the United States when I'm talking about Black History Month. Um, the first person I'm going to mention her name is Mary Kenner, K-E-N-N-E-R, and she was a black woman. She was an inventor um, early on uh, in the 1900s, and she revamped the world of feminine care with the invention of the sanitary belt or the maxi pad. And I know that probably sounds disgusting to a lot of people. However, what intrigued me about this was her invention attracted a lot of feminine hygiene companies but it was rejected by most of them when they realized that she was black. And unfortunately, the maxi pad was not patented until 30 years later, and it was just because she was black. So look her name up because she actually invented a whole lot of other things after that. Now, a lot of you may have already heard about Shirley Chisholm. She was the first black woman elected into Congress, and this was back in 1968. And so this was like right around the time of the women's movement and uh, civil rights. 
And so she, she was involved in a lot of extracurricular activities that allowed her to advocate for women and minorities. Another woman uh, named Billie Avery, and her name uh, is spelled in a very unique way. It's Billie, B-Y-L-L-Y-E, Avery. And she's actually been an advocate for um, women's health for about 40 years. And in fact, in 1983, she founded what is now known as the Black Women's Health Imperative. And it's the first national organization to specialize in black women's reproductive health issues. Now, the next woman I want to bring up, her name is Bianca Loreno. And Loreno is spelled L-A-U-R-E-A-N-O. And she is both Hispanic and black. And she's an educator and a sexologist who works exclusively with communities of color, immigrants, and youth. And she's been doing this for the last 20 years. She founded the Women of Color Sexual Health Network. And she really sounds like somebody uh, that I would actually like to meet or like attend some workshops that uh, she does. So I've actually put a star next to her name. We've all heard of uh, Serena Williams, the tennis player. Her story was pretty intriguing because she became an ambassador and a um, very outspoken in supporting women of lesser means after she had a health crisis after the birth of her daughter. She ended up in the hospital for a long time after the birth of her daughter. And because she, she had really good health care and was able to navigate through the system, she is now an ambassador for other people, other women who are not able to do that. And so I really applaud her for, you know, taking her celebrity status and being able to do that. These two young ladies, Nadia Barrow and Christina Worthington, they are sexual assault survivors who have become advocates for a support group called Worthy Women. And they're on the campus of North Carolina Central University. And it's their mission to create a culture of uh, consent. That's something that we often talk about. And they wanna help women to reclaim their voice and their power after having a uh, traumatic incident, namely sexual assault. So look them up, um, Worthy Women, and look up North Carolina Central University. Now this woman we've all heard about, uh, Dr. Jocelyn Elders. She was, the, she was one of the Surgeon Generals of the United States, the first black uh, Surgeon General and one of the only uh, women to be a Surgeon General and a head of the U.S. Public Service. Now, I didn't know about Dr. Jocelyn Elders that she was a pediatric endocrinologist and she used her background as an endocrinologist to study sexual behavior and she became an advocate for adolescence and sexual behavior. I didn't know that about her, and that's pretty impressive. Now, the final young lady uh, is somebody that I would really, really like to meet. Uh, her name is Carla Mena, M-E-N-A, and she works with the Center for Health Policy and Inequalities Research. She is a project coordinator for Teen Pregnancy Prevention Initiative 
and she's also in North Carolina and she's with the Department of Health and Human Services, the Women's uh, Health Branch. And she's always been an advocate for social justice and equity and involved in a lot of public health research projects. And so she is definitely somebody that I've uh, put a star next to her name and I would eventually like to uh, meet with her. And so again, her, she is a, uh, considered a woman of color and so I did add her to the list and her name is Carla Mena. So that was continuing on with Black History Month. So now moving right along for the month of February, I know many of you probably didn't know that February is National Cherry Month. And yes, there's going to be some funny things about cherries. Um, I'm gonna get to the sex stuff in just a minute. Now cherries uh, were first brought to the United States around the early 1600s. They weren't a uh, Native American fruit. They were brought here. And then like later on, maybe in the mid 1800s, that's when Americans started planting cherry trees. Now, most of you probably didn't know that the maraschino cherries were, came from Yugoslavia, and then Americans started producing their own maraschino cherries in, around 1896. And that's when they um, produced the maraschino cherries using liquor. So there is some tr there's some trivia for you about how we uh, got cherries here in the United States. I have actually added cherries to the list of aphrodisiacs. And here's why. When you think about the benefits, the nutritional benefits of cherries, you will add them to your list of aphrodisiacs as well. There was a study that was done by the University of Vermont where they learned that there are massive amounts of anti-inflammatory pro uh, properties in cherries. In essence, like before you uh, work out and after you work out, it would be a good idea to drink cherry juice or eat cherries in order to help your muscles to recover. And remember in some of the other podcast episodes, I've mentioned how sex is a physical activity. So eating some cherries or drinking cherry juice will help you to recover from the very strenuous activities that you guys are gonna be doing when you have sex. You can also snack on cherries because they have no artificial ingredients. It's natural sugar. Eating a cup of cherries is about 87 calories. And remember what I said about making yourself taste good when you're having oral sex. Cherries are good for that. Just like any other uh, sweet fruit like pineapples, you can also eat cherries. So again, you can add that to the list of aphrodisiacs. As far as cherries being a long-term aphrodisiac, the red pigment in cherries, is, it's an antioxidant. And so uh, anything that's an antioxidant is good for your heart. So in essence, cherries are considered an aphrodisiac in my book. So before I get to this other part, if you do have some cherries in your refrigerator, take a moment to, to go get a small bowl of cherries because I want you to have the visual of this as I'm telling you about the rest of this. You'll be glad that you did. Cherries have come to represent feminine chastity and purity as the fruit ripens on the tree. 
So get that visual in your head. Feminine chastity and purity as the fruit ripens on the tree. Once the cherries are plucked from the tree, it represents the loss of innocence and virtue. Doesn't that sound very poetic? You have the chastity and the purity as the cherries are ripening on the tree. And then you pull the cherries from the tree and then that represents the loss of innocence and virtue. Now, we go from poetic to something cruder, popping a cherry. That's where we get the phrase from, okay? We went from something very beautiful to an ugly phrase that we have called popping a cherry. Now you know where that came from. Okay. So now looking at that bowl of cherries that you have, cherries are the only fruit in history that have symbolized both an uncircumcised penis and a vaginal membrane. I didn't think so, but you tell me looking at the bowl of cherries that you have in front of you. So although the fruit is now most frequently associated with the female anatomy, think about some of our literary gurus. They notice that a bulbous cherry pressed up against pouting lips look like the tip of a dick and that a pair of cherries dangling over an open mouth resembles a set of balls. So now keep that visual every time you eat cherries. I'm just pausing for a minute for all of you that have a bowl of cherries in front of you. Moving right along. There are singers and musicians that have made cherries the subject of their songs. You have cherry cherry, cherry bomb, cherry pie, and then there's the song called Cherry Red and this is one of the lines in that song. I'm addicted to the feel of her cherry red. I'll just let that soak in for a minute. And I will let all of you Google the names of those songs. You still have your bowl of cherries in front of you. If you don't, go out and get you some cherries. Okay, so now that we have all of those visuals and we're ready to talk about sex, there are 10 very common questions that people have when they're ready to talk to a sex therapist or a sex coach. Besides the obvious questions that people have when they come to a sex coach or when they email us, they'll ask ridiculous questions like, do we sleep with our clients? And do we give massages and happy endings and all of that? And no, we don't do any of those things. So in fact, that's pretty insulting to ask people like us, do we do those things? So don't ask a sex therapist or sex coach about anything like that because it's pretty insulting. Now, we do get questions about people's bodies, about their relationships, their fetishes, their secrets, their fantasies, and so on and so on. We get, used, we get to use some of the same language that's associated with sex that people commonly use on a daily basis. So imagine this. You know, I'm a therapist and I get to sit across from my clients and have conversations about asses and dicks and pussies and orgasms and fucking. So it's actually a pretty fun job to have. 
and people don't get to do that if they have questions about those things like with a doctor or with a mental health professional, a regular mental health professional. Because if you think about it, or if you even ask your doctor, they don't really have the training to have a conversation with their patients when it comes to sexual pleasure. And neither does a regular mental health professional. And to them, it's, um, it might be even considered unethical to have that kind of blunt conversation, you know, using those words that people use every day when they're in the bedroom. People have also told me that they got the perception of uh, judgment when they tried to ask questions or have conversations like sex related conversations with doctors or mental health professionals. So that's why, you know, there are sex therapists and sex coaches to have those types of conversations with. So the first question, one of the most common questions that, I, that we are asked, am I normal? People are always wanting to know if what they're doing is normal, if what they're feeling and fantasizing about is normal, whether it's inside the bedroom or outside the bedroom, whether it's their level of desire or the shape and size of their genitals, whether it's the type of porn that they like or fetish that they have. I like to ask people like, what does that mean exactly? What does normal mean? Who sets the parameters for normal? And what context are they using when they come up with that, you know, normal? And so that's, you know, that's the beginning of my answer for that. If you're happy, if your partner's happy, if you're being safe, if you have consent, do whatever you want. No one has the right to judge what's going on in your sex life or your bedroom unless there's something illegal going on. So in essence, there is really no normal. You define what's normal for you. The second question is usually for vagina owners and it's, can I learn to orgasm? I've never had an orgasm. Now, before I get into that, something that I have to have a conversation with the person about, I have to ask questions or talk about child development because what happens with, with males and females, people stumble upon orgasm. And I put orgasm in quotation marks because during childhood or teens, when people are self-stimulating, that's where the, the pleasurable sensations happen. And so it's not necessarily an orgasm, it's just part of child development and discovering your body. And the person doesn't really know that that's what, you know, they don't, they don't call it, they don't know to call it an orgasm. And so I'll ask a woman, did she have any of those types of experiences when she was growing up? I will also ask questions about religious background. You know, what, what religion did she grow up in? You know, was there any shame or guilt associated with uh, seeing genitals or touching genitals or, you know, seeing nudity and that kind of thing? Was nudity and sex associated with procreation? So that would be important to know. I would also want to know, has there been any history of sexual trauma? Because that might be blocking someone's ability to have an orgasm. I would also want to know, is this about 
um, orgasm? Is it about arousal? Is it something about um, sexual interest? Is it about pelvic pain or penetration disorder or some other type of sexual dysfunction or medication? Becoming orgasmic is actually an intentional skill that can be developed. There are a number of techniques, especially breathing techniques that can be learned. It's a good idea to understand sexual anatomy and physiology. And if people are in hetero relationships, it's good to understand both the male and female um, anatomy and physiology. Example, the different parts of the penis, the location and function of the prostate, the differences between a clitoral and a G-spot orgasm. And most importantly, it's imp it, uh, people should be patient and have fun with the journey because this is a process. When a person is trying to learn the art of orgasm, it's a process and it's not a project. The next question, how can I give my partner an orgasm? So for this one, I think it's important for that partner to already be orgasmic on his or her own and be able to communicate very well with the other person. You have to already know your body and be able to communicate your wants and needs with your significant other. And so with this question, I would have similar responses that I had in the other, in the prior question about orgasm. Also, don't be afraid to use toys. Many times people think the use of intimacy devices and toys, that it's going to take the place of actually connecting with the partner, and that's not true. Using toys and intimacy devices actually enhance the sexual experience. For teaching a partner or helping a partner to orgasm, I do recommend working with a therapist or a coach. And the reasons for that are a therapist or a coach can answer your questions. They can recommend specific products. They can uh, give you specific assignments in sequences that are just for you. If you Google something, yes, you can get the information. However, that might be a one size fits all kind of circumstance. But if you're working with a therapist, a sex therapist, or a sex coach, the assignments may, will be done uh, in a way that is uh, specific for you. Now, th this next question that we are often asked, my partner never wants to have sex anymore. What's wrong? Now, there are a whole lot of things that can be happening in this situation like, for example, hormonal or nutritional changes, like the thyroid, um, the testosterone, estrogen levels, B12 levels, vitamin D levels, blood flow issues caused by hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, uh, effects of medications like antidepressants or uh, hypertension medications, there can be some depression going on or anxiety. There can be stress, like work-related stress. There can also be 
suspected infidelity or infidelity could have already happened and there was no recovery from the infidelity. There can be trauma. There can also be um, combat-related stress for people who, who have been deployed, people who are in the military, and combat-related PTSD. So these are things that we have maybe not thought about that can uh, be happening with a partner who has lost interest in sex. So I would think that uh, it's, it's important to work with a therapist and also work with a medical professional to rule out some of these other things that might be hormonal or um, nutritional or to make sure that there are um, no medications that are having an impact. And sometimes a person can actually have something diagnosed that they didn't know that they had. For example, hypertension or diabetes. You know, you can figure that out uh, just because there was uh, no sexual desire. Now this next one, next question, we watched this movie and want to try dominance and submission. So first of all, what's in pop culture isn't realistic. What you're seeing on TV and in movies and reading in books, it's not reality. There's way more to the dominance and submission and the BDSM than trying to tie somebody up or whip them with a crop. There needs to be some education about the whole relationship power dynamic and where you stand in all of that. And what I mean by that is really grasping the whole dominance and submission dynamic, the power dynamic, and knowing whether what your tendencies are. You know, do you tend to be a more dominant person? Do you tend to be a more submissive person? And what circumstances do you tend to be dominant or submissive? Because you very well could be dominant at work and submissive um, in your social life. So understanding that is important. There needs to be education on safety and consent and boundaries and open communication. This isn't as simple as people make it seem to be, and it shouldn't be romanticized. This is definitely a topic that needs work with a therapist or a coach who specializes in the area. If you're working with somebody that specializes in the area, then you'll be able to get some really good legitimate resources for the community. I absolutely don't think anybody should start doing any dominance and submission and BDSM activities with strangers or people that you meet on dating sites. I cannot stress that strongly enough. Unless you are one of these people that wants to end up on, you know, buried in, in some trunk or missing or something like that. Don't do any of this with people that you don't know because this does take a great deal of uh, communication and knowing what your boundaries are and safety and consent and you don't have time to develop any of that if you are just meeting somebody for the first time on a dating site. So the next question, can we really recover after infidelity or a cheating incident? Absolutely. In order for that to happen, of course, there has to be work with a therapist. 
And I always say that moving forward, there has to be a reset to the relationship and an agreement to a clean slate moving forward. There also should be a mutual agreement to invest the needed time and money to fix the relationship. You find professionals who specialize in the area and who are going to be a best fit for you. I also recommend uh, devoting at least six to 12 months of individual and couples therapy. And if you want to use insurance for the individual therapy, great, use your insurance for that, for regular mental health. However, for the couples therapy, I would recommend using a sex therapist or somebody that specializes in couples therapy. This should not be done as crisis management or with the expectation of resolving this in just a couple of months. Um, I believe that people uh, actually recover from this, recover from infidelity, if they are wanting to devote the time and effort to repair the relationship and consider whatever it is, the time and money that they're spending, this is an investment in the relationship. Question number seven, how do we spice up our sex life? We've been together for a long time and things have just kind of become monotonous and boring. How do we spice up our sex lives? Okay, so there are a lot of ideas for this. There are games that you can play, like little uh, card games or truth and dare kind of games that you can play. There's role playing. When I ask people about their date nights, they'll say things like, well, we're just going to go out to dinner. Well, be more creative than that. That's something that you can do to spice up your sex life. Be more creative with your date nights. You can have small groups of friends over and play games like sex trivia, things that are just for adults. You can attend fun workshops, you know, get on Eventbrite and uh, look up some, very, some workshops that you ordinarily wouldn't attend. You know, look up things that are outside of your comfort zone. Attend couples retreats. You know, get away for the weekend and find something that is uh, designed for couples. Get a membership to a swingers club just to occasionally be in an adult atmosphere. Now, when I recommend that people do this, it doesn't mean that I'm encouraging you to become a swinger or become part of the consensual non-monogamy uh, community. This just means that you are able to uh, be in an adult environment. You're able to watch other people. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you're not around a lot of, you know, people that are just, you know, 18 years old or 21 years old. You're in a very adult environment and it'll get you in the mood. Learn how to use different toys and lubricants and other products. And again, don't be intimidated by using intimacy devices or toys. There are even toys that you can use that are especially good for people who are uh, not together all the time, like if they're in a long distance relationship or if one party's in the um, military and you're on two different continents. There are products that are specially designed for that where you can you know, be sexual with your partner and be on two different continents. 
So think about that. Something else that I've been asking my uh, couples, do you think that your significant other has a uh, soothing voice to you? You know, is that something that you enjoy listening to your partner's voice? And nine times out of 10, people say yes. Like when they get phone calls from their significant other or they want phone calls from their significant other and they'll say things like, well, I just wanted to hear your voice. And so that made me think, okay, well, why don't you read to each other? You can read erotica. You can read books that help to improve your relationship. It could be anything. But listen to your partner's voice. It's soothing. And that can be something that helps to spice up your sex life. This is a very unique one. Taking the sex coaching program and doing the assignments together. The Sexology Institute has a sex coaching program and one of the parties can join the program. And because of the assignments that are involved, it can be pretty exciting to do those assignments with your uh, partner. For example, your partner may get to grade your technique on certain things, like tell you uh, how proficient you are at cunnilingus or how proficient you are at fellatio, you know, how proficient you are at putting on a condom. So think about that. You'll also have to watch porn together or go to strip clubs together and then document what your experiences were like. So doing this with your partner can actually be a, an exciting experience, or at least at the very least, it'll be a unique experience. You can hire uh, sex coaches uh, in what we call uh, here at the Sexology Institute, it's called Sexology Delivered. You can allow them to help you uh, host a party and they can teach a class, you know, maybe a fellatio class or a cunnilingus class, or a sex trivia, or a kink class, anal sex class, any of those, and those would help to spice up your sex life. And it's very different than some of the other things uh, that you've been doing. Number eight, how can I regain control of my erections? So of course, this is for penis owners. Now, lots of things can be happening here. Some of the questions that would be going through my head, you know, diagnostically, I would be, you know, asking, you know, is this about delayed ejaculation? Is this inability to maintain an erection? Is this ejaculating before you want to? Is this about performance anxiety? Um, is this about medication-induced sexual dysfunction or male hy hyperactive? sexual desire or anything like that. You know, I, th those kind of questions would go through my head. And whatever it is, I do believe that it can be addressed in therapy or coaching and working with somebody who specializes in the area. Of course, ruling out medical issues would be important. And so, you know, some of the same answers that I gave for, uh, you know, females that were not able to have orgasms um, I would use some of the same, um, some of the same interventions here. Number nine, I want to see my partner have sex with somebody else. Is that normal? Now there's that word normal again. Uh, so it's, it is normal. 
It's one type of consensual non-monogamy. And we call it, uh, when you're watching your partner have sex with somebody, you, it can either be called cuckolding or hot wifing, uh, depending on the circumstances. So because of this, because of the, um, you know, the boundaries and the communication and all of that, I would definitely recommend being educated in the area. The American Psychological Association under the Consensual Non-Monogamy Division 44, they have a whole lot of resources, educational resources. I would also recommend uh, other community resources, familiarizing yourself with it. There is a uh, sex educator that I know really well. Her name is Erica Force. She's very familiar with uh, the community resources on consensual non-monogamy. I know that the Sexology Institute has a lot of resources, educational resources on consensual non-monogamy. And there are other entities that have really good, uh, reputable resources on consensual non-monogamy. But definitely don't do any of this unless you have uh, good education and resources. So the final question, number 10, this usually comes from guys. I like watching porn, but my partner doesn't like it when I'm watching porn. Okay, uh, so ladies, and this is usually women who are complaining about it, there's nothing wrong with watching porn as long as it's legal, as long as it's not preventing the person from functioning in other areas of of his life and as long as it's not replacing sex with a partner. So men tend to be more visual than women. And this is just a generalization. Okay. I don't, I'm not going to name any specific, any uh, statistics, but men do tend to be a little more visual than women. Women tend to be more uh, fantasy driven. And that's why a lot of women read the romance novels and, um, yeah, they get more, they're more in their heads. They're more fantasy driven. Watching porn has absolutely nothing to do with a guy's desire to be with the person that he's with. He's not wishing that, uh, that you look like the person that's in porn. Uh, that's, that's not what it's about. Sometimes it's just a way for him to decompress. Sometimes it's, it's his me time. So the next time your guy comes home, uh, from his stressful job, just leave him alone with his iPhone so he can decompress or rub one out and he may end up being more pleasant and present for you. So that's all I have for this episode and if anybody has any questions about anything, just shoot me an email at Erin, E-R-I-N, at brighterfutureea.com. <laughs>